If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And friends, let me tell you about who we're going to be talking with today and what we're going to be talking about. Joanne Oppelt is going to be joining us and talking about how to get a high return on investment for your fundraising dollar. And Joanne has written the book, The Sustainable High ROI Fundraising System. It's an incredible book. And by the way, one of the best things about being a podcast host is I get to get copies of books and read them and then talk to the author. And this is also one of those situations where I feel incredibly lucky to be able to talk with Joanne about this book. So Joanne is a seasoned rainmaker. She has over 25 years in the nonprofit arena at all levels. We're talking volunteer, executive director, consultant. We're talking big organizations, small organizations. She also is prolific as a writer. So she literally has embodied the motto, don't just write one book. In fact, she's authored five books, co-authored 14 more, and I just learned has another book coming out in October. And all of these books deal with the nonprofit sector in some way, and many of them deal with fundraising. So let me just share with you that we are so lucky to have Joanne, the author of the Sustainable High ROI Fundraising System, with us today. Hey, Joanne, welcome. Thank you, Dolph. Of course. And I often will say in the very intro, and I did not, this is the last podcast recording session of the day. At 6 p.m., we're both on the East Coast. At 6 p.m., this is always the best one because we're both probably a little tired after a long day, and there's no pretense. We just we just let it go free flow, and we always have an amazing conversation on this last one. Oh, good. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. So I got, I think, probably in the first 10 or 20 pages of your book, I immediately got hit with a great story that made me laugh because I've been there and I, almost anyone I know who's been an executive director has been there. Tell me about your first board meeting as an executive director. Well, I was a brand new executive director. It was my first time being an executive director. I had come from a large organization as a development director 
And I walked into my first board meeting and the agency knew that it had some financial problems. It, it didn't know how serious they were, but it knew they had some financial problems. And they had brought me in to raise money for them. And I said, okay, guys, what are we going to do to raise money? And they looked at me and they said, that's why we hired you. We're not a fundraising board. We don't do fundraising. I love it. I love it. And I think that's such a common experience. Like you, I was a development director before I became an executive director. And so often I think, especially nonprofits that maybe are struggling around money, will hire an executive director who's a first-time ED because they do have a strong fundraising background. And I think in their heads, they think, well, this is a two-for-one deal. We get an executive director and a development director. Yes. Yes. And they don't think they need to invest in fundraising and they really don't know what fundraising is. And I find this true of executive directors. Most executive directors come from the program side of things, the operations side of things. Some of them come from the CFO or the financial side of things, but most are from program. Is that is that they think in terms of fundraising as the transaction that takes place, the exchange of money, the I ask, you give type of fundraising. that, And really, that's not what successful fundraising about. Successful fundraising is about building relationships. And your board is the relationship vehicle to your community and is representative of the community and usually your liaison to the community. So a lot of it is with the board, at least, and what I did was, okay, I'm not going to call it fundraising. I'll call it relationship building. I'll call it advocacy. I'll call it leadership. Um, but what it really is, is sets the base for fundraising. I didn't expect them to go out and make asks, which, by the way, five years after that, when I left, it took about three years. They were climbing all over each other as to who could, who could raise the most money. That's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. I will share with you, it has definitely been my experience with boards of directors where they will be like, okay, well, we're, we're kind of fearful about it. But once they realize how easy it is and how non-confrontational it is, they're typically are like, oh, this was much scarier than I thought it would be. You know, and, and, and I love the way in your book, you have some easy ways to ease board members into fundraising. Yeah, and it starts with the recruitment process and the identification process. It, you need to have diversity on your board, but one of the things that you need to make clear to anybody who is on your board is that you expect them to take a leadership position in the agency. And part of that leadership is their financial leadership to the community in terms of making a gift. Now, I know there's different philosophies on give or get. The, the one that I like is, please make us one of the top three charities that you mm -hmm. give to. And that allows for somebody who makes $100 a year and somebody who makes a million dollars a year to make different size gifts. And they're still both sacrificial. That's, that's the one I like. But to recruit them and let them know that governance and what they're doing in terms of governance is part, fundraising is a part of that. They have financial and fiduciary responsibilities to the community and legal responsibilities to make sure that monies are allocated towards the mission. Well, that's what fundraising is, making sure that resources are available that can be allocated to the mission. 
Absolutely. I, I want to jump back for just a quick second and talk about that mandatory give, because I know you talk about this in the book and I'm on the exact same page with you. Every board member of every nonprofit should make a personal gift every year. Yes. And it should be sacrificial to them, whether yes. that's a dollar or whether that's a million dollars. It needs to be a leadership gift for them. Yes. And I'll share with you, I was actually spending some time in the last couple of weeks trying to figure out how to explain this to an organization whose board I've kind of done a little bit of a, a board evaluation on because 100% of their board is not giving. And here's here's what I suddenly realized. I re- and right now, about 20% of their board's not giving. And so I realized, oh, what if I put this in terms of a baseball team? And I kind of explained to them that, okay, I get that the dollar amount you can give, even if you can give $10,000, isn't huge. It's not game-changing money for this organization. But it shows your symbolic support to fa- to funders, foundations, donors, etc. But I want you to think about a baseball team. Imagine you go to see your local minor league or major league team play, and you look out on the field, and there's two players, about 20% of the team, not in the team jerseys. What do you think about those two? Do you think, oh, they really love being a part of this team? They're enthusiastic. They strongly support this team. Or are you going to think, wow, they must not care that much. They do not wear the jerseys. And making that initial gift and doing it every year is the equivalent of wearing the jersey. It's something you have to do so you can show the world how much you support this organization. Right. And and foundations especially. I know I have in my career applied to many foundations who just wouldn't accept an application without 100% board giving. Mm-hmm. Or, or an improvement over the years to 100% board giving um, when that first came in. The old adage is, and, and this is true when you're budgeting as an executive director as well, is your money shows where your values are. You tend to allocate according to what you value. And financial funders, donations, institutions, things like that, know that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'll share with you one of the best treasurers I have ever worked with was actually someone who presented the finance committee report at every meeting kind of as a values report. Like, okay, this is what we value. This is where we're spending our money. This is how we're getting our money, which also shows our values. This is our values report. And I was always struck by that because it, especially for people that don't love looking at numbers and spreadsheets, it was an effective way to demonstrate that. Yeah, that's great. And so I'd love for us to talk a little bit about the fundraising piece itself, uh, other than just the board. And I agree with you, the board has such an important role in fundraising. But there's a handful of things that you talked about in your book as part of the system that I think are really important for us to talk about today. And one of those is the cost of raising a dollar. Well, there's there's different costs to raising a dollar. And I know that a lot of nonprofits, especially small to mid-sized nonprofits, even large nonprofits, do event after event after event because they gross a lot of money or because they're fun or because they're the favorites and everybody has a good time, or they write a lot of grants. Although they 
often miss out on a lot of individual donors thinking that there is not a market or they can't reach high net worth individuals, Yeah, um, which is not how I fundraise right, right. And, based on somebody's income. I do it based on the relationship that I have and, and the relationships that they can build. But um, the cost to raise a dollar through an event is 50%, just taking into account direct costs. Once you take into account your labor costs and your volunteer in-kind costs, most special events at best break even or lose money. So what a nonprofit is doing is raising however much they're spending and no more than that and wondering why they're getting ahead. Uh, I once interacted with a nonprofit, true story here, that raised $1.5 million through their gala. It took them $2 million to raise it. And they were wondering why they were losing half a million dollars every year, not looking at the cost it was to put on the gala. Yeah. And and I will say, there are some strategies in fundraising where it's okay to lose money because you're going to yes. make it up on the other side. Like, for example, direct mail, where, and yes. you talk about this in your book, where, you know, okay, you might spend a dollar fifty to get a dollar, but once you resolicit those donors and 50% of them renew, now you're making money on that transaction. Right. Right. And you can do that. And that brings back to donor retention rate, which is abysmal in the United States. Mm -hmm. The average overall donor retention rate is around 46%. It's been there for years. It'll go up and down a few percentage points. The average first time donor retention rate is under 25%. It's 23% the current time, which means that 77 of your donors that you got this year will not ever give again. And it costs more to acquire a donor, six times more to acquire a donor than retain a donor. So all that money is going down the tubes when if you actually lessen your goal or decrease your goal, your, your overall net goal, but increase your donor retention rate, you'll net more money, you'll mm -hmm. gross less, but you net more money. And I give an example of that in the book. It's very powerful for people who do not realize how much donor retention affects net income. Mm -hmm. and, and to your point, those figures you're talking about are averages. And so, you know, if the average new donor retention is 23%, the organization that invests money in retaining their donors and cultivating them after, you know, thanking them and making sure that they grow to love the organization even more are the ones that might have a 40% retention rate. Well, overall is the repeat donors as well as the, as the new donors. So, you know, a good, and I've seen organizations get there, a good first-time donor retention rate hovers right around 60-70%, and overall donor retention rate hovers around 80% or so. It's hard to get there. It takes some work. You really have to have a donor program in place, and you have to have uh, a plan of care for both your lapsed donors and your current donors as well as your potential donors really know what you're going to do and get your messaging down, get that donor experience down and mm -hmm. measure it to see if people are satisfied with it. There's a lot you need to do to do that. But um, yeah, if you have an 80% donor retention rate, you're, you're doing you're really, really well. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, but but again, like I was, I was really struck because I don't want to pull up your book here. So listeners, you're going to hear a little bit of noise as I do this. So I was really struck because you talk about the cost of raising a dollar um, pretty early in your book on page 40. And um, I loved that, you know, the most cost efficient way to raise money, and I've always felt this way myself, is major gifts and yes. capital campaigns, but really major gifts. It's 10 cents on the dollar. What an yes. investment. I, and I say this again and again and again. Like, if there's only one thing that you could focus on, focus on major gifts. Yes. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to know people of net worth starting, high net worth starting out. It means that you define what major gift is for you. And then as you grow into the program, I know a lot of organizations who define $500 as a major gift. I know a lot of educational institutions who define $10 million as their major gift. This is our lowest major gift. But to have that and then to grow from the $500 to the $1,000 level and then grow from the $1,000 level to the $2,500 level and incrementally grow. But that demands that you keep up what you're doing and that you have some sort of sustainable system in place that you're not just doing A and doing B and doing C and Mm -hmm. doing it all over again year after year, but you're actually improving and measuring and and incorporating the changes that you need to make changes into the environment, which is why it's so important that executive directors are involved in fundraising, because you need somebody with that external, that interacts with the community and that can bring back to the development, development director should be as well, bring back to the development director and uh, your reactions or your perceptions of what's going on in the community. So the development director can also make those changes that she needs to, or he needs to, to the plan of care that he has for each of his donors. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I know um, when you've talked about the development director position in your book, you talk about the development director being a generalist. I Yes. And I think that the most successful, especially in small to mid-sized nonprofits, which is most of the nonprofits out there, is to hire for generalists, to hire somebody who can do a little bit of everything, except maybe grant writing. Grant writing has its own nuances to it that you need a, a good writer for. And that's not necessarily somebody who's going to be good in major gifts or in um interacting with somebody else on an external basis. You really want an introvert to be writing your grants. But anyway, it's beside the point. But um, you want to have a generalist so that you are developing relationships and so that you are basing the measurements and the evaluation of your fundraising program on how well those relationships are working and so that you can move somebody up the development ladder from say an annual gift of $25 to a major gift of $500 to another major gift of even higher than that and keep them going up the ladder and retain them and cultivate them so that they become actively involved rather than saying, well, this one was gotten through the annual appeal. That's this person. And this one was gotten through a major gift. That's that person because there's no room for movement. And the experience, if there is movement and a donor does want to give, they're passed from person to person to person. And that's no good either. You want to make it a smooth, seamless donor experience. 
I love that you talk about that in your book because it's really not something I thought about, but how disruptive that experience is, especially when we overlay, frankly, the revolving door that a lot of development offices have. And so, you know, so a donor over the course of a five-year period might end up having six or seven different relationship managers if, as they go up the ladder in giving, they get passed over to another person and then that person leaves. Oh, yeah. I've known major donors and foundations, too. It's like, well, the executive director left. Nobody told us. Do you know how jarring that is for a donor or the or the development director left? And this is on two ones in and I didn't even know about it. You know, so the communication systems between a nonprofit and their donors drastically needs to be improved. And that will improve donor retention. That will improve the satisfaction with the relationships the development director is having. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that will help the experience be a better one for the donor who is so important to the life of the nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And and so, and just so that I understand, so if you've got a multi-person development office. And so, um, you know, you've got, say you're running an annual campaign and you've got someone who's not a specialist in the annual campaign, but works on the annual campaign, but also is working on major gifts and some other things. Um, What that really means is pretty much everyone other than grant writer in your development office is a generalist. Like they all know a little bit about a lot of the areas of fundraising, but are not a specialist in any of them. Correct. And then you, you use CPAs and estate planners and lawyers and things for the more technical aspects that you need to get into. But to hire a generalist, what happens is that you can take care of more people on a relationship basis than you can. You you end up hiring less people. Your costs go down because you're you you're doing it relationally instead mm-hmm. of by fundraising channel or by the right. gift channel that they're making, which requires a lot of expertise. So what happens in reality is that your costs are going down, your revenues are going up, is your return on investment goes up through the roof. Right, right. And and I, I love the way you talk about that, because really that means then, you know, if I was an annual campaign donor given $25 and eventually make it to $2,500. I don't get passed over to a major gig, major gifts officer. Five years later, I say to my major gifts officer, oh, you know, I want to consider a planned gift. I'm like, oh, well, let me pass you over to the planned giving officer. Right, right. Yeah. Or I don't do wills, whatever it is. I, I need, well, let's talk over to Susie Q, who does. I really believe and, 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 Business has been doing it for years in measuring the customer experience and the customers that nonprofits have. And it's really the whole organization are the clients and the people who fund them. And sometimes they're the same person, but oftentimes they are not. Um, And when you're talking philanthropic giving or high net worth individuals, and if you're serving a low income population, they're not going to be the same person. We've got two different customer experiences that you're measuring and that you're evaluating. We do well with program. We don't do so well with donors. Share an example of how we can measure the donor's customer experience. So in the book, I have a chart of the steps that a donor would make. But the first thing that you would want to measure is how visible are we? Can people find us? Are we accessible through a phone book or through a mobile phone directory or on a list or 
Where's our telephone number? Where's our email address? Where's our website? How, how visible are we in the community? And that goes a lot to messaging because mm-hmm. a lot of that is branding and messaging. Then, then you want to look at, well, somebody's found us. What kind of incentive do we have them to call us? And how easy is it to call us or contact us or email us or text us or whatever it is that we're doing and go through that experience. And then now they've gotten to us. What's it like once you answer the phone? You know, what is the receptionist saying or what is whoever is answering the phone saying and how easy is it to get a hold of you in a large organization? Does the receptionist know what number to press? When I was working in those large organizations, I would always make small talk with a receptionist outside because, you know, 1,200 people in the building, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like, I want the calls to come to me. <laughs> right. I love that. You know, but you can go on and on about the customer just breaking it down when every single every single touch point that you have with the donor and then looking at it. And one thing that you can do is pretend you're them and go through the system yourself. Yeah. When people do that, what do they often find? Like, you know, what are the biggest pain points? Like, I'm going to pretend like I'm a major donor. I'm going to try to reach out to the organization. What are their biggest pain points? Visibility mm-hmm. is one of them. The receptionist not knowing if you're in a large organization, where to put the call is one of them. Really? that That's uh-huh. really that common? Yeah. Wow. Especially if you have a multi-person development department, that doesn't often get to the right person, and then it, it exacerbates that you're not yeah. the right person. I've got to give you to Susie Q. So it's syndrome. Um, the uh, website not being accessible it is a pain. Uh, it's mainly upfront because once fundraisers are really good at interacting with donors once they have them in front of them. It's usually getting mm-hmm. them in front of them. That's the, that's the hardest part. And then the other part of it is after the interaction. The interaction is usually satisfactory if they have a good relationship with the donor and between the donor and the fundraiser. But afterwards, the, the donors are often sent out into outer space, never to be seen again. Right. And it's like, well, what did you do to capture them? Did you say thank you? A lot of times people don't even say thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what do you do after you say thank you? What do you do to engage them? There's a lot of a lot of places do not have a donor engagement plan, mm-hmm. which leads to the low donor retention that we were talking about. Right. So you know, it's a system. It's a system. I'll share with you. One of my mantras has always been: the authenticity of the thanks is in direct proportion to how quickly I get the thank you letter. Yes, and that's true whether it's a thousand dollar gift or. $25 gift. Like literally, I'm like, even if it's machine generated, he, if there's, assuming there's an actual hand signed signature at the bottom, I'm like, if it takes two months to get me that, that letter, it probably not as authentic of a thanks. That's right. And again, I'm going to go back to my board when I said people need to be thanked. Let's have a board thankathon. One of the things they were worried about was, well, won't donors be bothered by us saying thank you? And I said, no, no one that I have known has ever been offended by being authentic, authentically thanked mm-hmm. too much. Yep. No such thing. Yep. 
And Joey, I'm probably like you. You might have been doing them longer. I've been doing thankathons for like 25 years as a development director, as an executive director, as a board member. I love, love, love thankathons. And there's two things I especially love about them. The first is it's an easy way to get your board to dip its big toe into actually fundraising and participating in fundraising. And they're often, as you said, often surprised when donors are like, oh, thank you so much for calling. I'm glad you did. I love all the work you're doing. And every now and then they might get an earful from a donor, but that's okay. Like that's part of the role of building relationships. Hey, if you've got an issue, tell us about what that issue is. So that's okay. But here's the other thing I love, and this probably says bad things about me. But when I'm doing those donor thankathon calls, you know, someone picks up the phone and I ask for them and they ask who I am and I say who I am and what organization I'm with. I can just hear the hesitation in their voice like they're waiting for me to ask for money. And all I'm doing is thanking. And typically in the last minute of the call, they suddenly realize I'm really not going to ask for money and their tone changes. I can't see them, but it feels like even their facial expression changes. Yes. Yes. Donors are not used to being thanked. And that's a crying shame given that we're fundraisers. It's a crying shame that, that we are not expressing, we as a nonprofit group are not expressing our gratitude for the funds that people have given us so graciously. We, they don't have to. They do it out of the goodness of their hearts. Right, right. And we need to be in a position where, man, that's, that's huge. It doesn't matter if it's the $25 gift or the million-dollar gift. It's huge that somebody has chosen to take some time out of their day to give you enough attention to give you some of their hard-earned money, mm-hmm. whatever amount it is. Mm-hmm. And and I'll share with you, and it's not that hard as long as people get into the habit of doing it, as long as we as executive directors or development staff get in the habit of doing it. A couple examples I'll give is I've set up in the past, I've set up the CRM so that I get an email of every gift that's made online. And, you know, this is typically in a slower period, like June, July, August, whatever. So I might only have a handful a day, five or 10 a day. But then literally I take 30 minutes and I just handwrite a card to each of those people every single day just to say thank you. Um, The best one that ever happened, and this actually happened when I was an interim executive director not too long ago. I thanked someone for their generous gift and I got a card back from the person saying, um, I I was so thrilled to get your thank you, but I felt bad that you called my $50 gift a generous gift. So I wanted to make a gift that I felt was really generous. And there was enclosed a check for $250. Wow. And, you know, it's not why I thanked, right? You know, but admittedly, I also knew that this organization at that point in time was having some challenges and getting printed thank you notes out quickly. And so I'm like, well, this is an easy thing I can do while we fix that. Yeah, that's great. The, the other things, because again, we live in this amazing time where it can be really simple. Um, there's also some creative ways that, you know, we can quickly thank donors by text. And so um, an, another place where I was doing an interim, uh, toward the end of the year, lots of money, you know, lots of checks are coming in, and, you know, lots of online gifts every single day. And so the whiteboard behind my desk, um, I just wrote, thank you. And then I'd write the donor's name on it. I'd take a selfie and I'd text it 
to the donor. And then I'd erase that donor's name and I'd write the next donor's name <laughs> and I'd take a selfie and I'd text it. Um, but, you know, again, same thing. I got all of these great responses back. Oh my gosh, I loved getting this. And and so we connected. And then, of course, the last one, and this is old school, you know, this this is not new newfangled, um, just all gifts over a certain amount, just pick up the phone and call or yes. get, get board members who are willing to pick up the phone and call and say, hey, thanks. Yes, yes. The best part for me was because I like change. I like seeing things go for the better was to see the board the, the first time that they did a thankathon to see them come back excited about fundraising after having heard not less than a year before we are not a fundraising board. To me, that was so exciting. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know why that makes me think, and I've I've not done this. I actually had an organization recently share with me they did this, and it was incredibly effective. You know how oftentimes board members will say, well, we don't want to all come to one place and do a thankathon. Just give us cards, and we'll we'll go and do it. And then, of course, as staff, we're chasing after them for the next two months. Have you made your calls? Have you made your calls? And eventually, we just give up on some small percentage that are just not going to make the calls. Well, this organization actually um, does something where everybody gets on um, on Zoom and all mutes themselves on Zoom, but so everyone can see each other and actually making the calls, et cetera. So they still schedule a time. They just get on Zoom so they all feel like they're together. And then there's that mutual accountability. When the organization told me that, I was like, what a great idea. What a really great idea. Yeah, yeah. Joanne, there's one other thing I wanted to make sure we talked about before we get to an off-the-map question. And so you have also written a lot in this book about recruiting and retaining your development director, which I think is a huge pain point for a lot of organizations. Yes. Um, They're hard to find, number one, and they turn over quickly. Now, the reasons that development directors leave are because they're unsatisfied with their job. They feel like they're the savior. They're looked on as the only fundraiser there. There's a toxic work culture or they're not being paid enough money. You know, they they do leave because of that reason. The way that I overcame that was that I hired part-time someone experienced specifically because we were in financial trouble. I know I needed somebody who knew what they were doing. So I paid her more per hour, but I used her less hours a, a week. So my my payroll was not inflated. And I listened to her and uh, I talked about expectations up front. I talked about my style of communication. I expected her and allowed her to talk about her style of communication, um, what words were trigger words for her that I shouldn't use, what words were trigger words for me that she shouldn't use. I mean, we talked about all of this stuff up front and I gave her goals. Um, we were in the middle of, as an organization, making our first ever strategic plan. We were in that process as well, but I would share with her the strategic plan and the goals and and what our dreams were and say, give me a map out a plan to get me to point A. Let me see the plan and see if it lines up with everything else that we're doing as an organization, but map that out for me. And it was so exciting for her to be part of that growth story. 
And I didn't pay her a lot either. We were in hmm. financial trouble. We were a small organization. Wow. <laughs> and she's still there today. Uh, what happened was that she raised the money that was needed. We were doing a lot of special events at the time. She said, get rid of the special events, the major guests, of course. So she helped me get, and I believed in that as well. So it wasn't a hard push. I said, I need somebody to help me through the transition. We got through that transition, but I was there for five years. I've been gone for about eight years and they just doubled their endowment. Um, their operating budget has increased by 150%. You know, it's just, it's wonderful what you can do when you have a good relationship with your development director. There are points of conflict that you're going to have. Uh, one of them tends to be, uh, especially if you're from the operating side of things, in cost containment. As an executive director who looked at the finances every day, I knew, and, and who was, it was at a cash strapped agency, like most agencies are. It's like, I had to keep costs under control. And you have your development director saying, oh, I want to take somebody out for lunch or <laughs> I need to travel to a so-and-so meeting because, and it's all high net worth. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then the staff is looking at that and saying, well, the executive, the uh, development director gets to party all the time. And that's not the case. They're building relationships and getting out there. But you have to come to a happy, you have to discuss all of that beforehand. Mm -hmm. How much of an investment are you willing to make to get donors uh, satisfied so that they will come back again and give again, number one, and give more, number two. It, it's all about the relationship and it goes back to really your priorities and your values. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. A couple of things that really stood out for me when you talked about recruiting and retaining your development talent. The first was, and I, Joanne, I could not agree more with this. The first was, you're going to have to pay for the experience you need. Yes. Like, you can't go cheap and get the experience you're going to need to grow your organization. Right. You make, as I alluded to before, the person I hired, I didn't hire her full time. She didn't want to work full time anymore. She was yeah. nearing retirement age. She didn't want to work full time. I couldn't afford full time. It was a match made in heaven, but she was experienced. So I got more for my dollar per hour than I would if I had a rookie who would mm -hmm. take twice as long to do it. But the efficiency is worth it. The other thing that I did was uh, we had one office manager, for lack of a better term, I'll call her an office manager at the time. And she was also part-time and didn't want to work full-time. But I gave my development director access to the office manager. I said, my stuff goes first because to the office manager, I said, but I will tell you when her stuff goes first, because some of her stuff's going to be more time sensitive than mine. And I come back, come to me if you, if you have any questions, but I gave uh, the office manager complete the development director complete access to the office manager so that there would be good administrative support. Mm -hmm. I was not going to sit there and pay whatever dollar amount I was paying to the development director to sit there and make copies right, or to sit there and look up addresses. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't going to do it. Right. I noted that you talked about that in your book as well, that, hey, an admin assistant is less expensive than an 
experienced development director. Special events coordinator, less expensive than an experienced development director. So think about how you use your development director's time. Because, And again, I love the fact that you talked about this because there's a finite amount of time. So often we'll think, oh, well, it's an exempt employee. Sometimes they're going to have to work 60 hours a week. Well, A, they're not going to stick around. B, even that is finite. Once they hit 60, they still can't work anymore. Right. And I run into development. In fact, I'm working with an organization now where the development director is just stretched to the to the limit. And it's like, look, take care of yourself first, because if you burn out, she's almost to the point of burnout. He said, you've got to do something because if you burn out, look how look how much is lost and you don't want to leave. You don't mm-hmm. want to, you just feel the, all this pressure on you to perform. So, you know, it's like, if, if I had a magic wand, I would say to executive directors everywhere, have your development director be a direct report, number mm-hmm. one, yes. do that, number one. And number two, respect them as an equal. Um, not necessarily with the same role, but as an equal in terms of they are your revenue generators. They are important. They are not going to be the same people that are running your programs. They are not going to be the same people that are running your human resources. They are not going to have the same outlook as the people who are doing your accounting for you. They're not going to, they're often alone, just like you feel alone, this person, executive director, the development director also often feels alone in their job because they're the only person with that outlook. Make them your friend, develop a relationship with them, build trust between the two of you and respect them and what they have to say, because they will respect you back and they will stay. Mm -hmm. And can I add one more thing to that? Yes. The other thing I would definitely add, and I think this applies to people like you and I who were development directors before becoming executive directors. And if you have a fundraising background of your own, allow your development director to have the autonomy along with the accountability necessary to do the job the way they think they should do it. Because none of us... None of us like to have that executive director who once was a fundraiser is going to tell us exactly how we're going to do it. And we're going to go, oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. And do it. Well, if, if you're an executive director and you're doing that, you have way too much time on your hands because you're not focused on the right thing. Agreed. So one of the things that I learned real quick as an as a as an executive director was there was too much for me to do. And I, and if I was going to micromanage, I was going to drown. Mm-hmm. I could not, could not agree more. Gosh, well, Joanne, I just looked at the clock. I can't believe, oh my gosh, we've been on for like 42 minutes. And um, I promise you we'll be done at the top of the hour. So I've only got a couple minutes to ask you the off the map question. And I've got a good one. So when we first got on and we were doing our sound check, you had mentioned that you recently moved across the country from New Jersey to Florida. And so my off-the-map question is, what is your favorite thing about living in Florida? Ooh, probably the weather. I do not miss snow and ice. Um, It is, I, I lived for so long in a northern climate that Every winter when I see a steep driveway or something, I'm like, how did they get snow off? Oh, it never snows in Florida. (laughs) I still find myself thinking like that. (laughs) But uh, 
it's absolutely glorious, especially by the coast where there's a breeze most of the mm. time, glorious weather most of the time. In the summer months when it's so god-awful hot, um, you can still get out in the mornings and the evenings. In fact, the, the local news here calls us the grill and chill forecast. Every single night, there's the grill and chill forecast, and I love it. I love That's awesome. That is awesome. Well, Joanne, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us just a little bit about your book, The Sustainable High ROI Fundraising System. Before I share with listeners the many ways they can get in touch with you, I understand you have another book coming out in October, but um, but I actually don't have it in my notes. Will you please share with us what that book's going to be? So that book is basically taking the system that I talk about in the sustainable high ROI fundraising system and giving you a manual on how to implement it if you're an executive director. Uh, for example, in recruiting development directors, I give you interview questions. In recruiting volunteer, mem uh, volunteer board members, I, I will give you a sample uh, board member packet, recruitment packet, you know, those sorts of things. Um, I actually give you a budget that will show you how to figure out your own return on investment, net income, and donor retention rate and all of that stuff. So it's coming out in October, and it's called The ROI Mindset, How to Raise More Money with a Budget You Have. I love it. I'm looking forward to getting a copy of it. Um, I, I love books that are actionable and have worksheets and like, okay, here are the things you're going to do. So I'm looking forward to getting that. Thank you, Joanne. And listeners, let me share with you. Here's how you can find her. You just go to joanneoppeltcourses.com. That's joanneoppeltcourses.com. And when you go there, you can get actionable tips on actually how to engage your board in fundraising. She actually has some free cheat sheets on there, including one that is four strategies to shift your board to willingly fundraise. Mind you, not begrudgingly fundraise, but to willingly fundraise. And that's the trick. Also there, you can sign up for her weekly newsletter. You can get information about the book that we talked about today. I'm pretty confident if you sign up for the newsletter, you can probably get information about the book when it, that's coming out in October. And the last is you can also get tips for the thing that is so difficult for so many of us, and that's attracting and retaining your fundraising talent, or as some people like to call them, your fundraising staff. Joanne, thank you again for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I've had a ball. All right, listeners, if you've got your phone and you're on the go and you are not able to write down the URL, joanneoppeltcourses.com, no worries. I just want you to go over to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. We will have this in the show notes. Also, while you're over at SuccessfulNonprofits.com, please do me a favor and click on the link to review this podcast on your streaming app of choice. And if this conversation about how to get a high return on your fundraising investment was something you want more information about, two other episodes that you should consider downloading and listening to. One is episode 103, 10 Ways to Get Your Executive Director to Fundraise with June Kress and Chris Rutledge. That was such an amazing episode. If you're a development director and you really want to figure out how to engage your executive director to raise money, that episode is for you. And the next is episode 165, Four Tips for Efficient and Effective Fundraising with Patton McDowell. 
That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. And you know it because I say it at the end of every episode. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This show is for informational purposes only, and it should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. If that's what you need, please find a licensed, qualified professional that can provide you with the advice you need. And if you're not sure who to reach out to, you can always contact me. And if I know someone, I'm happy to connect you.